some great words. Hope you were following along with those words as they were playing. And uh, it's uh, at that song we had then uh, as well the uh, "No one ever cared for me like Jesus," really pointing to um, how much Jesus wants or is at work having a relationship with us. And as we're in John chapter 6, you know, we've been there for a while, and we've still got a, got a little while yet to go to finish up chapter 6, but it's really the story of Jesus caring for people. Sometimes it's, it's a little bit hard to, as you, as you read about Jesus and his interactions with people throughout the Gospels, we, we impose our feelings onto him. <laughs> you know, and Jesus deals with people who just won't get their eyes off the things around them and look up. And look to God, and and Jesus deals with with leaders who are more interested in keeping their own power and their own control and things like that, and not changing. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reading those passages, I put irritation and anger into those in Jesus' voice, right? Uh, but He is like those songs talked about in His heart. He loves all people. All sinners. And so it's not as though, oh, well, there's those, those, those good ones who, who jump right in and follow him right away, and then there's those other ones, and he'll just kind of sort, kind of push those aside. Jesus died for every sinner, right? And he loves the people that, he, that come up after him, that come against him, even the ones who were responsible for him going to the cross, which is all of us, but those more directly, you know, responsible, right? Uh, it was the tax collectors and the sinners that were called that Jesus spent a lot of his time with. And so as, we, as we've walked through, through John chapter 6, to me it's, it's just such a great example of how Jesus really wanted people to understand Knowing their hearts and knowing, you know, who would get it in that setting and who would not. And he, he, he continued on with being creative in his approach, patient, persistent, coming back around again and again, saying the same thing in a little bit different way, saying some the same things but maybe in more depth. Now here's what I meant by that. Uh, Jesus just keeps on giving the people who are listening, and then us, because that was recorded for us, every reason to understand what it is he has to say. And then to, of course, his ultimate goal is not just that, that they hear and understand, but they believe in him and trust themselves to him. And so he keeps on persistently, patiently, lovingly speaking to them what is true. Now, that doesn't mean sometimes maybe his voice doesn't have a little bit of, of serious tone to it, right? Just like a parent's does sometimes, right? But he wants us to know him and understand. And so as we continue on here in John chapter 6, we're in verses 41 through 51 this morning. And we've already seen Jesus feed you know, this massive crowd of ten to 20,000 people out of almost nothing, demonstrating that he is the creator God. We've seen him uh, stick his disciples in an interesting test out on the waters of the Sea of Galilee 
as they're, they've strained and they've tried and they've worked to get across the lake and couldn't do it. So then Jesus goes and walks out on the water to them, demonstrating that he is the Lord over nature, the creator of it. You remember when he, they, they finally welcome him into the boat, the sea is calm, and they're at the, their destination. Should have caught on, first of all, to the loaves, right? And what Jesus did with the loaves and the fish and multiplied them. But now they have the disciples particularly have no excuse for not understanding that he is the creator God. Because he can command. He can, he can overrule. He can trample the waves, as the Psalms puts it. And then he begins this interaction back and forth with, first, I think there's kind of two phases to what follows. I think he starts talking with the people who come across uh, the Sea of Galilee, following him, hoping for something to eat. Uh, somewhere in there, according to the end of the chapter, it transitions into the synagogue. And, in, and as we start into our section this morning, verse, verse 41, um, it says, therefore, the Jews. And when, usually when John says the Jews, what he means is the Jewish leaders. Because all these people were, were Jewish. There might have been a few, a few Gentiles scattered within the crowd, but his primary audience during his earthly ministry was the Jewish people. So when he says the Jews, he's really kind of narrowing it down and saying, now the Jewish leaders are kind of getting taking the, the bull by the horns, so to speak, in this conversation. And Jesus is interacting with uh, the Jewish leaders who are present, whether they be the synagogue officials of Capernaum, or if, they, or if it's others who have come from Jerusalem to, to see what he's up to. And so, having already interacted with them and told them, I am the bread of life, that great I am statement, right? I am what you need. Not more manna like you had when Moses was leading you. Not just another meal like you had yesterday from me. But what you need is me. You need to feed, you could say, on who I am. Draw your nourishment. In that, you will have eternal life. Well, that, of course, they haven't quite gotten the message. They haven't gotten their eyes off, off the food yet, right? the, the physical food. And so Jesus continues in verse 41. So please follow along with me uh, as I read verses 41 through 51. It says, therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the, from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it 
and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the, the, it says here the Jews, in verse 41, were grumbling. And like I said, probably means the Jewish leaders, they probably transitioned into uh, the, the synagogue by this point in Capernaum. And that interest, it's interesting that it talks about the Jews grumbling in the context in which they're saying, oh, you're the one who's like Moses. Give us bread from heaven like Moses did. Right? Parallel between Jesus and Moses stands out quite a bit when then he says, and the people here were grumbling. Right? It happened a lot in the, after they came out of Egypt, right? They were out in the, in, in the wilderness. And things weren't going the way they wanted. Uh, turn with me to Numbers 11. Uh, we're going to look at verse 1 and then verses 5 and 6. I mean, after, this is after, by the way, they've already gotten manna from heaven. After God had already done some amazing things for them. And it says in verse 1 of Numbers 11, Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. God had been so gracious and, and kind and caring and, and pulled, taken them out of a place of slavery, they grumbled against the Lord. It's interesting, both here in the Hebrew and in John in the Greek, as we have in English, the word murmur or grumble sound like what they are. Grumble, 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 right? Yeah, that sounds just like what it is. It's that talking in low tones. Can't really quite be heard, but you know it's not good, right? People are saying this, this is just not so good. And that's what, what's happening here. And Jesus notices them doing the same thing in his day that they did here. If you jump down as well in, in Numbers 11 to verses 5 and 6, we have some content of their grumbling. Uh, we remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. God gives them bread out of heaven. And they remember the, the Egyptian food and not the Egyptian slavery. They remember the fish but not the whips. They remember, you know, the leeks and the onions, but they don't remember being crushed under a load of work. And it's so easy to forget the big, huge blessings of God, not being thankful, but to murmur. That's what Jesus is seeing in the crowd. The descendants of those people who murmured in the wilderness are murmuring again. It's interesting that if you go to... Uh, Psalm 78, which is where what they most likely what they were quoting when they were asking him for, for bread. You know, that the people came across the they came across the uh, the sea following Jesus, and they're like, Well, 
give us a miracle so that we know that we can believe you after he'd already fed so many thousands of people. And they quote to him back in, in verse 31, they say, he gave them bread out of heaven. They're, they're likely quoting out of Psalm 78. And I want us to take a quick tour of Psalm 78 to understand what that psalm was about. And, and there's a, a good bit of irony in the fact that they would pick that line out of this psalm. And so um, the, the context really of this, this psalm is, is overall is kind of takes us back to that idea of the grumbling spirit that the people of Israel had. And so as we, we, we start out here, uh, we kind of grab the purpose in the first section. Um, let me just go ahead and read down through uh, verse 8. It says, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known. And our fathers have told us, We will not conceal them from our children, but tell them to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. So let's just pause there for a moment. He's saying God gave us truth and understanding and a record of what has happened. Why? So they could teach them to their children. So verse 6 continues that idea, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. So going down generation after generation, right? That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. You catch what's going on here? God had told their forefathers, here's here's some truth you need to pass down to your children and your children's children and your children all the way down. Guess who Jesus was standing in front of? The ones who should have been told these things, right? So that they would not be like their forefathers. And as verse 7, not forget the works of God, not prepare their hearts. I think Jesus has grasped on to where they quoted from. And this is, this is the heart of the message he wants them to get. So as we continue on now in, in the following verses, particularly 11 through 16, we'll, we'll see how God treated the people in the wilderness. It says, Now the sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, this is verse 9. Then they turned back in the day of battle. Yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt and in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. And he made the waters stand up like a heap. Then he led them by the cloud or with the cloud by day and all the night with a fire, a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness, and he gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused the waters to run like rivers. And here the psalmist Asaph is, is saying, look at all the, the 
amazing things that God did for those people out in the wilderness. He gave them every reason to trust Him. He gave them every reason to believe that He would care for them in every circumstance. He gave them every reason to believe that He was powerful and could take them out of hard things. But what happens? Verse 17, they still continued to sin against Him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert, and in their heart, they put God to the test. Sound familiar? Jesus does an amazing miracle, and he says, believe in me. And they say, do a miracle for us so we can know we can believe you. They're putting him to the test, aren't they? Still that same pattern again. By asking food according to their desire. Oh, the exact same test the people put him to in the, in the wilderness, right? Verse 19, then they spoke against God and they said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Well, Jesus has just shown them very clearly that he can, right? And so Moses' time, Jesus' time, God's doing the same thing, and the people are rebelling in exactly the same way, aren't they? Verse 20, behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? And God responds, verse 21, Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath, and a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also mounted against Israel, because they did not, what? Believe in God. And did not trust in his salvation. And he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them to eat. And here's what they quoted to him earlier. And gave them food from heaven. Interesting, that one phrase the people pulled out. said, well, he gave them food from heaven. Jesus, what are you going to do? Wow. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. Grumbling in the face of God's gracious care for them. Gracious showing of his power through Mo in Moses' day and through Jesus as he cared for these people out in the, out in the, in the, uh, the countryside. And what are they complaining about? Now we see the, the parallel. We see uh, where Jesus is probably connecting to. Uh, verse 42, what, what's the grumbling all about? They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Earlier they got focused on when Jesus said, seek to do the work of God. Said, oh, well, what, what's the work we can do so that we can be right with God? They wanted to do some sort of a thing. And remember, Jesus said, your work, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. Now they're focused on Jesus saying, I am the bread that has come down out of heaven. They missed the fact that he said, I am. They should really be like, did he really say that? Did he just claim the name of God for himself? Now they're, they're following this whole line of thinking that, that's about Jesus' physical lineage. 
Well, we know Mary and Joseph from Nazareth, or just across the way. They, they've come here. At least they knew Joseph. Joseph has probably passed away by this time, but they're, they're like, we know, we know where he came from. He's nothing special. He didn't descend down out of heaven. And he's explaining the purpose of his coming. And they're just wrapped up. Again, they've got their eyes down on the physical. They've got their eyes on, on physical lineage and descent. Of course, that was all taken care of. God had, had laid that out fine through Mary and Joseph, although Joseph wasn't his physical father. But they're looking the wrong way. In verse 43, Jesus knows their heart. And look at, look at how he, he addresses them. Jesus answered and said, Do not grumble among yourselves. That's a bold command to these Jewish leaders, isn't it? They're, they're, Jesus is like, don't grumble. Stop it. It's a, it's a command. Do not grumble among yourselves. It reveals that they're, they're not really hiding anything by this, their undertones. But also, it, it, it shows us that Jesus believes he has a right to tell them what to do. He calls them out. And it's a gracious calling out here. You know, here's where I might tend to put a little annoyance in there. I think he's being gracious in calling them out. Don't grumble among yourselves. That's what they needed to hear. Stop being like your forefathers. You remember the word that God gave them to pass down to you so that you wouldn't act like them? So stop being unbelieving. Stop grumbling against God. This is God at work here. Do you want to end up where your forefathers ended up in the same way? And then he goes on now to the role of the father. And I think this is really critical as we get into verse 44, that he turns their attention to the father and he repeats father a number of times. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. He says, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you to me. Now we could jump off into a discussion here over election and the sovereignty of God and whether some people are elect and some people are not. I'm not going to do that because I don't think that's where Jesus' focus was. I think his focus was on the Father. Now he is talking about the necessity of the Father working. And as I mentioned last week, Really, none of us are smart enough or wise enough or whatever enough to believe on our own. It takes the work of God in us so that we will believe. I think Jesus is stating that very clearly. But now what he wants them to do is to concentrate on the Father and his role in their believing. He's already established in the previous section that it's those who are given to him as a gift from the Father that will come. And that word come being equivalent with believe. He, he, he parallels those so that we know when he says come, he means believe. And he uses a present tense verb, which means keep on believing. And in Psalm 78, we saw God's gracious care that should have drawn a, re a rebellious people to trust him. But they on the whole rejected it. He wants them to make a connection and say, God has done amazing things for you that should draw you to him. Isn't that the case when somebody is kind to you? 
and cares for you and shows you great kindness like that? Aren't you drawn to them? I think they all had every reason to be pulled God's direction. Now Jesus is giving a strong warning here that the same thing is happening to these men. They aren't coming to Jesus. And that demonstrates that they're ignoring the Father's gracious care that draws men to the one the Father has sent. And notice that Jesus doesn't talk about God did this or that in this verse. And even so much through the section, he talks about what the Father does. And I believe he's challenging these Jewish people about whether they are children of God or not. Whether they really can call God Father or not. They claim God as their Father. In chapter 8, verse 41, they say, We have one Father, even God. But they don't recognize how graciously he treated them like children. And their forefathers, as they were brought out of Egypt, and God said, I, My son I will bring out of Egypt, right? And how he had great care and patience and restoration and promises for their future. And Jesus has claimed that God is his own personal father, right? Remember that? They almost stoned him in, in Jerusalem for saying that. And he has also claimed again and again that the father is the one who sent him. So if God is truly the father of these Jewish people who are grumbling, and Jesus is the unique son of God, and God sent him to them, then they'll be directed to the one God sent, right? The father sent. If they have the same father doing the same thing, there should be a connection. But why aren't they drawn? Why aren't they attracted to this God who cares for them? They should be coming in belief. And complete dependence is what Jesus is saying. I think his point is, who is your father? Who really is your father? And then he, he takes it even further there in verse 44 when he reiterates, and I will raise him up on the last day. Another one of those things that he repeats again and again, that he in fact is the source of life. He is the one who can raise people from the dead out of their sin. Again saying, who else can do that but God? tightens that connection. He says things that we should be like, Jesus raises people on the last day from the dead. Certainly, that's the only, only God can do that. And they're arguing about, well, we know who Mary and Joseph are. So Jesus takes them another step. He takes them back to the prophets in verse 45. He says, it is written in the prophets. You say you value God's word. Let's see if you do. And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And Jesus pulls this, this uh, phrase out of Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. And we're not going to take the time to walk through all of Isaiah 54 like we did of Psalm 78. But it's from a prophecy, and the topic of the prophecy is the restoration of Israel after the, after the exile, even though they have rebelled against God. So they, they, they worshipped idols, they rejected God, they, they killed his prophets, all those things that happened 
in Israel and Judah before they were sent into exile. And then God writes them after, by the way, Isaiah 54, you realize, comes after Isaiah 53. I know it's stating the obvious. But you know Isaiah 53, don't you? It talks about the suffering service servant and all that Jesus, who is the one who will come and fulfill that role, will do for us. Then 54 <clears throat> talks about how God, even though they were sent into exile, and in verse 7 he says, for a brief moment, I forsook you. But God will ultimately show them compassion, it says. And the, the demonstration will be that all your sons will be taught by the Lord. Here's a sign of God's care for you. That one day God will be teaching each of your descendants. Now, I think the ultimate fulfillment of that won't come until the end of the tribulation period when Romans is fulfilled that says, and all Israel will be saved. But that's a whole other discussion. But God is pointing ahead to say, I will work in the hearts of those who are my children, right? Are, you, are they listening to God, the one they call Father? If he is teaching them, they should be looking for the one that the Father sent. They should be looking, by the way, for a whole new covenant, uh, which Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 talks about. And if you're in our Thursday night Bible study, this is familiar territory for you. <clears throat> Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, before, while the old covenant is very functional, God, through Jeremiah, says, oh, but there's a, there's a new covenant a better covenant, a covenant that will accomplish salvation coming. And it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. By the way, in another passage that's talking about God's plans for the future and the restoration of Israel and then the ultimate restoration of Israel. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. In essence, Jesus, pointing back to the prophets, is saying, that day you should be expecting is here. God is now working. You know, the one you call Father is now working in hearts so that you will be drawn to the one he sent. If you're not being drawn, check and see who your father really is. Because who will listen to the father but his children, right? Who hears and learns from the father, as Jesus puts it back in John chapter 6. This is the second part of verse 45. Everyone who has heard, did you hear God? Did you hear what he had to say? If you're a child, you should be listening and learn from the Father. Ah, uh, it's not enough.
to hear or to memorize or to get it down, but it's required to actually learn what it means so that it becomes part of your life. If that's the case, all that do that come to me. And he's throwing out to them the question, who is your father? Who is your father? And then Jesus goes on to say, verse 46, not that anyone has seen the father except the one who is from God. He has seen the father. I don't know if you, it took me a while to catch this. But Jesus is saying, not only have I heard from the father, I have actually seen the father. Jesus says, I've been with the Father. I've seen him face to face. That's not something just any ordinary man can claim. Matter of fact, remember when Moses wanted to see God? God said, you can't see my face, right? For no man can see me and live. So Jesus is clearly stating here that he is much greater than Moses. So he brings that all back in again, right? Moses couldn't see God's face and live. But Jesus says, oh, no one's seen the Father but the one he sent, me. Who's your Father? Who is he pointing to you, you to? If, if God is truly your Father, you should be coming to me. Well, by the way, we began the book of John with that understanding, didn't we? Remember back in chapter 1, uh, verse 18, as we were just getting started? said, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. They're speaking about Jesus. Jesus not only has seen the Father, he has that close, intimate relationship with him to, to be said that he's in the bosom. He's, he's just so intimately close with the Father that now he has come and explains the Father to us. He's doing it here in John chapter 6 to people who are murmuring against him. He is explaining the Father. And so when we get to verse 47, he now repeats his main point again. And he underlines it, you could say. He, he puts exclamation points behind it, you could say, by saying, truly, truly. In other words, listen to this. If you haven't caught anything else, catch this next thing I'm going to say. I'm repeating, which is also giving emphasis Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Entrust yourself to me, and you will have life with me that goes on forever. Contrast is in verse 49. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. Oh, but before he gets there, what does he do? He gives his I am statement again, right? Verse 48, I am the bread of life. It's not about who my physical parents are in this world. Mary being physically, yes, literally his mother. Joseph being the man that God gave to, to care for him in his growing up years. But Jesus said, I am. I always have been. I, I don't have an actual beginning. There is a point where I was born into this world, but I am and what am I like? Well, I am the bread of life. I am the one who gives you what you need for eternal life. Manna wasn't enough, verse 49. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and what happened? 
They died. Eating that manna sustained them for one day. Then they had to eat some more manna, right? And then they had to eat some more manna. And then they had to eat some more manna. They died. And you just want the same thing, don't you? You just want another meal. You'd be happy if I sent manna to you every, every day, you think. You think that would satisfy you. But you know what? As soon as you stopped eating it, you would die. And even if you kept eating it your whole life, you would still die. It would not give you eternal life, even though it comes down out of heaven. Verse 50, he hammers it home. This, speaking of himself, is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus is the bread that preserves life. Man only sustained physical life for a little while. Jesus, he says, he says, I'm, I'm what gives you life. I, I'm what keeps you from dying eternally. And then Jesus, notice in that phrase, in that verse also, points to the personal nature and a choice when he says, if, basically says, if a person eats of this bread, he brings it down to, to you individually. If you individually eat of the bread, well, eating is a choice, isn't it? You can eat or you can not eat. If you eat, you live. If you don't eat, you die. It's as if he says, if God is your father, you will eat the food that he sent for you out of heaven. And that is, you'll believe in me. You'll rely on me for life that keeps on going. And no one else can eat it for you. Right? Your physical food, can someone else eat your lunch for you? Well, they can eat your lunch, but it'll do you no good, right? A child can't say, oh, well, mom and dad ate, ate breakfast for me, so I'm good. Right? Wouldn't work. In the same way, Jesus says, you need to come to me personally to draw life from me, or you will not have life. Makes it very personal. He makes it very much about a choice that you have to make. And so again, he points backwards to, well, who is your father? And by the way, that's going to culminate in a, in a big confrontation in chapter 8 with the Jewish leaders about who their father is. Right now, and we're going to stop right here. And fifty-one will be our transition into the next section, which I just, which I read at the end there of the, of the scripture reading. But I think it really wants us to say, first of all, as a believer, if you have already believed in Jesus, if you've come to that point and entrusted yourself to Him, right now, I hope, I hope you're just feeling amazed and in awe of what it is God has done for you, and what Jesus is to you, and how He continues to. To, to provide life for you because you have come to him and now you dwell in, a, in a, a super intimate relationship with him whereby he keeps on giving you life. That life that keeps on going and will never end. Even if your body, when your body dies, you will keep on living in him and he will give you a new body one day. Right? I, hope, I hope you come away from this saying, wow, what a, a a God we have. What a Savior we have. Look at what he is like. 
I want to know more about him. But for those who haven't believed yet, haven't entrusted themselves yet to Jesus, I want you to know that God makes Jesus available to all who will hear him, that is the Father, and come to the one that he sent. This doesn't just apply to these Jewish people that Jesus was talking to, but he applied it then to the whole world, sent his disciples out to the whole world to say, here, here is life that comes only from taking of Jesus, believing in him. And really, so the question is, is verse 45 true about you as a person? Remember verse 45, it said, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Is God speaking to you today through his word? Is he at work in your heart telling you you have a deep, deep need to be forgiven of your sins and have new life? If that's true of you today and you haven't believed in him, well, keep going. He says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, comes to, believes in, entrusts themselves to Jesus. If if God is working in your heart, now take that act of faith and say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. I give myself over to you because you paid for my sins. You died in my place so I don't have to die. You give me life that never, ever ends. Because it's a work of God. And it can happen in you right now simply by saying, yes, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need my sins paid for. I need life in you that never ends. And it will be given. Jesus simply states it, doesn't he? He who believes has eternal life. Boom. It's yours. It goes on with him forever. Will you eat? By entrusting yourself to Jesus. That's the question for you today. Let's pray. Father, it is a, an awesome and unbelievable thing just from a human perspective that, that Jesus is all that he claims here. And yet it's true. We're so thankful that it's true. Lord, help us to live as those who believe it. Help us to live as those who want to honor and glorify you day by day. And and Father, if there's anyone here who is still uh, confused or reluctant, just pray that you would be at work in their heart by your spirit to just push them over that line of belief that they'd be willing to let go of whatever else they're trusting in and just simply trust alone in Jesus to forgive their sins and be their, their food, their life, all that they truly need. Look forward to now what you will do in, the, in this new week ahead. For your glory, in Jesus' name I pray.